Hi, and welcome to show number six of the El Cafecito Travel Talks, a podcast where people share travel stories and adventures. My name is Tony Lloyd, and I'm going to be your host. I would like to thank all the people who have been listening to our previous shows and encourage you to subscribe on any of the platforms. As I've mentioned before, the first set of shows have been pre-recorded here at the Hostel El Cafecito in Cuenca, Ecuador. I'd like to encourage you to send your comments, your feedbacks, to elcafecitotraveltalks at gmail.com. As we're a grassroots production, we're still looking for ways to help us grow. If you've not done so already, please take a look at our Facebook page, providing written stories by travelers. For today's show, my guest is Luke Watterson, a Lonely Planet travel writer. So please get yourself a tea or a coffee and enjoy the show. I'm uh, Luke Watterson. I'm a, a novelist and travel writer. I'm here in Ecuador at the moment to research uh, the new edition of the Lonely Planet uh, Guidebook uh, alongside a few other articles. And um, I'm loving being back in Cuenca. It's, uh, it's beautiful to return here after, after several years' absence and it's nice to uh, see what's changed. My family, when we were growing up, my, my parents don't have passports, okay? They don't travel at all. Okay. They go just to other places in the, in the UK. So, our family holiday was always, it always seemed much less impressive when, you know, my friends were going off to like the south of Europe or something, okay. somewhere nice. But we'd always get in the car and we'd go up to, and we'd go up to Scotland. But yet, and from an early age, every year we'd do this. Like we'd leave at three or four in the morning, we'd be driving all through the day. As, as a contrast, my sister hated it. She's like, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? But I, on the other hand, was totally the opposite. I was like, I was loving it. Like, I hope we never get there. I hope we never get there because I love the journey. I love this idea of a road trip. And okay, in the scale of the world, a trip from the south of England to the north of Scotland is, is really nothing. But yet it's still, it's still kind of like, let's say, sowed a, a kind of a grain of like something in, in me. It started to make me obsess over over roads and where they and where they went and I started collecting atlases and so like whilst other kids were I, I don't know doing doing something much more much more kind of like I, I don't know generic like playing football or something I'd be just kind of poring over these uh, atlases and and you, you know like I had lots of different ones from like different centuries and with different approaches to cartography like I, I remember one of my first ones I was only like uh, six or seven it was like a it was one which showed the the original maps of exploration routes in in South America in the New okay. World, okay. not just in South America, also in Mexico and uh, Central America. Canada. Yeah, and, and exactly, and, and this fascinated me too. And then I got I, I got obsessing over the idea of this road that connects the north of Canada with Tierra del Fuego in Argentina. Yeah. I, I know this was I was still probably quite young, you know, fourteen, fifteen when I, I just. This idea was just sown in my mind. I had to do this particular trip. I just okay. knew I had to do it. I don't know why. I guess uh, there are some things that make doing that road trip easier than, say, a road trip across Asia or somehow more appealing. For example, I could learn Spanish. I mm -hmm. learned Spanish reasonably well. Spanish links most of those countries on that yeah. route. The idea that you could then have a kind of road into discovering a little bit more about a culture. That was what um, set in place first big uh, traveling. Uh, I, I did it after university. I did it. Okay. So you went all the way through the Darien Gap also? Or I, did, did I didn't go through the Darien Gap. That's okay. my biggest uh, regret. I didn't, I didn't okay. go there. You still have time. Exactly. I mean, at the time it was even more crazy, I think, than it is, than it is now. 
Um, but but still, like we were hearing stories about like these hippies who had done it, and mm. so that kind of fed into the whole uh, narrative. But other than that, it was overland by bus a, a year and three or four months. Yeah. So that's the that's definitely a big part of why I I fell in love with. Okay. So when did you then decide to start writing? Actually, I, we, we, we've come at the travel approach first. For me, first and foremost, I, I, I brand myself now as a novelist and travel writer. But as far as the travel writing is concerned, we've been talking about the, the travel uh, okay. aspect. But actually, what was always most important to me was the writing uh, aspect. And I had this idea in the back of my mind that if I was traveling, that would somehow be able to kind of feed into the novels that I might uh, want to write. So always first and foremost for me was the writing. I, I studied uh, creative writing at, uh, at university. I was writing stories since I was like three years old. It was the only thing I was ever really good any, any good at, uh, in my, in my uh, opinion. And then I guess I also thought additionally, uh, probably it's quite hard to make it straight away as a famous novelist. And so a very, very interesting and fascinating kind of thing to do in the meantime is travel writing because it immediately gives you a life that doesn't adhere to any schedule. Right. And as soon as you're freed of schedules, your creativity flows and that in turn, I found, helps helps the writing as well. Uh, my first novel was based on a, uh, a like, like, like a, a mixed up version of several trips that I've done writing for Lonely Planet and for other uh, publications in the jungle because you immediately have the world is all around you as soon as you can as soon as you've been into the jungle and you can imagine it of course it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the 1590s or the 1990s or whatever because the jungle doesn't change well let's let's go back to something there for a second to something like the lonely planet what how do you then do you become a lonely planet travel writer yeah there's there's, there's so many threads to the story of how you get to where you are, right? But we've already talked about two of the key ones to answer your uh, question. We've already talked about the uh, trip that I did from uh, ending up at Tierra del Fuego, okay. and as a result of this, I started I started approaching uh, publications, saying, "I think I actually originally wrote into Lonely Planet. I said, hey, loads of the stuff in your guidebooks are really wrong.' Okay. Uh, so." After a while, they got back to me and they said, uh, "Well, actually, we've got um, we've got some spaces uh, on our Peru book. That was the first one I did, and we'd like to give you a try." Yeah, and then that 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 was how it was. Uh, so the point with all this being, I think uh, that there 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 are two key things about how you get to write for Lonely Planet or to be a travel writer for any publication. First of all, you have to have a passion for traveling. The passion for writing is important, but I think first and foremost, the passion for traveling. And second, you have to be you have to be quite determined because it's not an easy career in which to make very much money at all. It's actually fairly difficult. I don't know that many other travel writer colleagues that I have that are even able to do that full time. It's more a glamour type thing. Yeah, it's a glamour type thing and it's a fun, it's a very fun thing, especially, you know, I was, what, 25, 26 when I got offered this uh, chance to go back to the country where I just had so much fun traveling through and this time I was actually going to be paid. It's like a proper job. It's like my first proper job that I cared about. I mean, I had other jobs, but like in factories or something, I didn't care about them. So uh, this was like a dream uh, come true for me. But the other thing that I think is important if you want to do any kind of travel writing is that you have to show evidence 
that you can write and that you have traveled. Yeah, <laughs> because because it's it's what, like when I tell people, for example, that I'm that I'm a travel writer, they're like, oh, you are the easiest job in the world. But as um, I'm sure you know personally, it's not quite like that. Uh, people assume that they have traveled, and of course they have. People assume that they have written, and of course they have. They've written a letter or something, or you know, they've written a report. But to write something that inspires other people to do that thing is is much more difficult, and not everyone can do it. Although everyone, for absolutely sure, will think they can. I'm sure everyone that comes to well, stay at this hostel will think that they could write a Lonely Planet guide. I wonder if they'd have so much fun if they had to be going around inspecting people's bathrooms. As you know how it works, going to bus stations, going to airports, finding out all these little boring details. It's not like you can just hit the bars and kind of do exactly and party all day long. Yeah, I mean that the, the bars, for example, that we list on uh, in in Cuenca, they probably constitute two or three percent of the overall information that we have on Cuenca. So, which is very very little, of course. So, yeah, I think also what's really important is that, especially nowadays with you have all these reviews that people are putting reviews on restaurants, putting reviews on different hostels. There's so many people who think they have an opinion. Yes. And some of the, sometimes when I read some of these reviews, they're hilarious. I remember reading one where a woman was complaining about a party hostel that she had been in, that it was too noisy. And somebody else wrote a review underneath her going, what part of the word party hostel did you not understand? Well... Yeah, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with TripAdvisor. Hell, I use it sometimes to try and find out various things which, which, which are useful for me in my work. What I would say about it, which goes back to what you were just saying, is that it's problematic because uh, if you have 10 reviews of a hostel in Quito, then it's very difficult to ascertain well, what's the precedent for these reviews? Have these people ever left the comfort of their own home before? Well, maybe some of them have. Maybe some of them are hardcore travellers and, and uh, they've been all over South America and their opinion that they give is actually comparing that place to all the other places they've stayed in South America. But most probably it's not when you start to look at the comments. A good example, Puerto Rico. People complain that, you know, that they stay in a good hotel. I couldn't sleep last night because of the cocky frog. The cocky frog is everywhere in Puerto Rico, absolutely everywhere. It's in the walls of the buildings. It makes a chirping sound. It's a frog. That's what it does. That's its job. Um, unfortunately, that's Puerto Rico. It's the national symbol of Puerto Rico. They have a cocky frog. To complain and to say that a hotel is somehow less good because it has cocky frogs in its walls is just ignorant, and I'm sorry. There's no other word for it. You can't, you can't, you can't diss the quality of an establishment based on how many cocky frogs happen to be in the vicinity. <laughs> now, I'm not saying every review is like that, but there, there is the danger of a skewed opinion. And then uh, turn around and ask, well, why is Lonely Planet's opinion any better? You could say, well, TripAdvisor's uh, opinions are based on tens if not hundreds or thousands of reviews. Your opinion is just one. What makes your opinion uh, good? What makes you the expert? What maybe. makes me the expert? Nothing makes me the expert. I just happen to have traveled a, a, a lot in South America. I don't say that I'm better qualified to do the job than anyone else. 
but I say that I'm well qualified to do okay. it. So that's the difference. I am, I, I, I've made a career out of professionally reviewing places, whether they're five-star hotels or little dirty hostels in the middle of nowhere with cockroaches raining down. That's been my career. So I wouldn't turn around to the investment banker and say, well, hey, I reckon I could, I could do investment banking just as well as you. So it just seems to, because everyone thinks that they have traveled and because everyone thinks that they can write, therefore, travel writers actually, especially when people are in the zone, yeah. when people are traveling in South America, they tend to come under a lot of uh, scrutiny because everyone has a guidebook and everyone says, oh, I bet the Lonely Planet guy didn't go here or I bet he didn't go there. Okay. But so, so you become a target when actually that's perhaps not the, 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 best, um, the best approach that people uh, could have. Yeah, sure. Um, they, could, they could do the same job as me, but let's see them do it then. Let's see them start to keep a blog. Let's see them prove that they can actually write something. Let's see them prove that they can travel and write unbiasedly that's not actually a word, is it? Unbiasedly on on that channel. <laughs> You're the writer. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So um, anyway, I think uh, that's answers. Okay. So then, how? Okay. Let's then talk a little bit about you get to a town, a city, maybe a city like Cuenca. Let's use that example. You land in Cuenca. You get out of your the bus or the airport. How do you start? How do you start to select? Like, how does one actually write a section on a city or a town? How do you select which hostels to put in, which restaurants? which sites to see? How does that work? Well, that's a very uh, difficult question to answer because the ways of doing that have changed over the years. Now the internet has a wealth of resources where you can pick places out that you think might be like the candidates that you okay. want to put in the book. And now our job is made much easier because we have this, this precedent, this, this wealth of information that's online that we can go on. We still have to check it, of course, because okay. we don't know what's true and what's false. Exactly. But uh, we have that to go on. But when I first started, you know, you were in South America way before me. You know how it was. There wasn't, there wasn't much yeah, there. Sometimes you show up in a town and you just have to ask the person at the bus station. Well, where, where well, yeah. <laughs> well that's, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, with the sites, it tends to be a little bit more straightforward because you can see how many churches there are and maybe the town has a museum or maybe it doesn't have anything. So the sites are okay. But how do you decide which places to put in the book? In a city like Cuenca, I'd actually say Cuenca is a very good example because it's particularly difficult. Why? Because Cuenca, by South American standards, I think it's a it's a fairly advanced city. It's got a wealth of very beautiful cafes and restaurants. Mm -hmm. Even the less good ones still appear quite nice. So with Cuenca, it's really, really hard. Okay. And actually, cities like Cuenca and Cusco, as another in, in Peru, is another good example. There's such a wealth of stuff out there that those places become the hardest to disseminate and get to the good stuff. And sometimes, of course, we put something in the book, and it's been a big mistake, and we shouldn't have done it. Um, often, you know, you talk to the people and you, you get an idea. You get an idea because how quickly they ask you about uh, money, for example. If they ask you too quick, you know that's not a good uh, thing. If you go into a hotel to check it out and it looks nice from outside and then you've got two gormless teenagers just kind of staring at you blankly, I'm sure you've had this as well, where, just, <laughs> where, where, where it seems like you've just walked in from another planet and, uh, and they don't come and uh, offer you uh, anything. Uh, then you know that that's probably not a good uh, place to put in the book. But of course, there are a lot of good places that don't get in the book, and there are a lot of average ones 
that probably do because it depends on the place. Yeah. Because in a small town and the moment, it, it could and, be and the, the moment and the moment. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I, I've had disagreements with my colleagues uh, before. Like one of them will come along uh, one year and say, "Ah, oh, this place is great," and maybe the sun was shining and the person they spoke to was nice. And then two years later, I come along and it's raining, and the person I speak to is maybe different and grouchy. And of course, I have a different opinion. It's like I'm quite sure. You know, towns that you've showed up in where the weather is terrible when you arrive and where a few things, a few little things don't go right. All these little things, these nuanced things do affect things. However, I do think the places that we, we like to put in Lonely Planet, and this isn't just true of Lonely Planet, it's true of any publication that I've ever written for. Um, there are There is a certain quality of place that... Uh, shines shines through despite all these little nuances here or there and of course yes i've written about a place one year and i've realized that actually two years later i go back there it's not as good it was probably a mistake to put it in the guide but normally there's like there's a kind of um like a, a stalwart set of of places which do remain good and they do stand the test of time along with the dozens of others that kind of chop and change their locations and close down etc etc exactly Okay, so you told us the story about your South America and how you got in tune with South America. I've noticed here on your information that we've got um, Eastern Europe, we've got the Caribbean. Yes, um, but quite quickly after that I was asked to write about Cuba, okay. and so I spent a lot of time in Cuba then and uh, Puerto Rico, the Lonely Planet, and for a bunch of other publications too. And, I, and the Eastern European thing is on there because I lived in Slovakia for four years. Let's talk a little bit about how you see something like a guidebook today versus the internet and where will it go well, tomorrow? I suppose I have to be careful how I answer this seeing as so I'm in here in a kind of capacity of lonely planet. However, I think the guidebook does will continue to have a place. In the world, it's very unlikely that there will at least say, let's say, in the next 10, 15 years, there will be a resource so good and so all-encompassing as a, a guidebook. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons for this. You can leave the guidebook um, on the beach and you go swimming. Nothing's going to happen to it. No one's going to take it. The way that you read information, too, is different uh, in a guidebook versus uh, online. I, I think what people will do is they'll have both. They'll have, they'll have apps and they'll have maybe chip advisors or some other similar uh, equivalent uh, to, to help inform their decisions. But tell me how much about the history and the culture of a country TripAdvisor tells you about. It doesn't. Okay. All you're seeing on TripAdvisor is the, the five-star the, or the, the, the highest-rated uh, reviews and have, having someone who actually works uh, for TripAdvisor as a close friend, I can tell you that those reviews can be very skewed. People can pay to have place uh, elevated on TripAdvisor. I'm not sure how it works on Booking.com, but anyway, TripAdvisor, which is one of the key ones, mm -hmm. it is like. Now, the difference with a guidebook is, is that it's researched independently. I'm getting paid by Lonely Planet or by whoever. So all I care, my only motivation is actually quite a pure one. It's to write about the best places that there are to uh, mention. And I think people, there are people who do appreciate this and you see it in South America now. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. Do people still have guidebooks? I, I do tend to think that a guidebook, for example, gives a very good arc to a narrative. 
you see the riders in the back, you find out their information, you basically find out their life stories through a, 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 a little uh, research. I know that we could go on and talk for hours and yeah, hours, and I'm, I'm sure, sure there's a lot to talk about. But let's, uh, one of the questions I like to ask the people I'm interviewing is about those people who might be listening to us that are like, okay, how do I do this? How do I start to travel? What sort of recommendations do you have when people are saying to you, oh, you're so brave, how do you do this? You go out into the jungle, you do all these adventures, you know, but I'm different. What do you have to say to those people? The type of people that maybe have an inkling of a wish to actually go, but exactly. don't have the confidence or the, uh, because they perceive that they need certain things which they might not have to do. Exactly, um, or even some of those people who have decided to venture, but they'll stay on the safe trail. And just, you know, to say to them, how do you get off the trail a little bit? First of all, I would say, I would say, don't do anything rash. Get some books out of the library, buy some books in the shop, but actually maybe novels, maybe, maybe reference books. It doesn't matter, but books that actually give you a little bit more of an idea about what you might be taking on. And when you start to have reference points, like, oh, yeah, say, for example, with Colombia. Oh, yeah, Marquez, I've read about him. That already starts to give you, like, a little bit of a little bit of a more kind of like um, vested interest in, in a place. The music. Ah, okay. So I recognise that tune on the bus. You find out about the, a little bit about the life of the people first of all, and then once you've done that, I, I suppose then you just there is a point when you have to take the plunge and buy that ticket or or whatever. But there are many ways of doing it in a slightly more environment which is still a, you know a very a very good way of seeing a very noble way of seeing a place you can do some volunteering for example in a particular city you'll still have the trappings some trappings of a kind of uh, let's say European or American lifestyle because you'll be with some other travelers okay. you'll still be experiencing a beautiful new place that you would never perhaps otherwise have a chance to go to but you'll be doing it in a slightly easier way that's that's a good thing to do to start with or maybe just don't take on too much as well. Don't take on too much. Don't think that you have to do the whole of South America because whilst I did it, I would never do it again. I would much rather now come back to this continent in little pieces. I think that's something that happens more as you get a bit older as well. You want to concentrate on a few things and do them deeper. Um, so don't take on too much. Travel's not supposed to be daunting. It's supposed to be fun. And there's nothing, you don't have to feel bad if on your first day, your, your second day, you take a plane somewhere or a taxi somewhere, fine, do do whatever makes you feel comfortable. But then slowly, as each day progresses, something will happen which will make you feel a little bit more relaxed. I'll tell you something, it's perhaps a, an interesting note to even, uh, to even finish on. Usually, when I come, even back to Ecuador, and I've been to Ecuador like three or four times, I've been to Peru a bunch of times, always, when my flight touches down, I have this weird sense of almost depression. And it's very strange. I've been excited about my trip all along. But then there's that moment when uh, you're thrown into an alien environment when you suddenly think, oh my God, I, I, I want to just be in my own house, my like bed. in my own garden, in my own bed, whatever. Um, and then you, you, just, you suddenly realize, oh my God, actually now I've got to make a real effort to do things that back where I come from, I do without even thinking about. I totally understand that feeling. Yeah. I've had it several times in different places. Yeah, it's a weird thing, right? It's a chemical thing. I suppose there's something deep within us that makes us just happy when we're in a place that we know. Thank you, Luke, for your time. And thank you for listening to today's show. I'd also like to thank our editor, 
Marshall Donnelly. I'd like to invite you to not only share this podcast, but our Facebook page with others. All your comments are welcome to elcafecitotraveltalks at gmail.com. And when you're in Cuenca, please stop by the hostel or the restaurant. For now, all the best and please stay safe.